The other th reason why I wanted to do this is how the book of Romans, the New Testament book of Romans, is the most written on and most preached on uh, book in the New Testament, um, except for this chapter. And because this chapter is largely a catalog of names, it is most often ignored because, you know, there's nothing important in here. Just people, right? Um, so I think it's, uh, there's something, uh, Paul wrote this, uh, and it was important enough for him to include. So, uh, and it's actually in the Bible. And so uh, I think it's uh, worth our time this morning as well. We'll revisit this chapter at the end, uh, but today I want us to large, I'm going to read the whole chapter, but I want us to largely focus upon uh, the list of names uh, that are here. So, but before I do that, uh, let me pray. Father, we rejoice today in your goodness, your love, and your mercy. We thank you for the church. Uh, we thank you for these named uh, individuals that you bonded to yourself in Jesus Christ and bonded to one another. They're also different. And Lord, this text tells us that you are the good shepherd. And the good shepherd knows his sheep, knows them by name. And so I pray today, especially for those who may think of themselves as unseen or unheard or unknown, that they would be encouraged today to know that you know them intimately warmly, dearly. Uh, help us with that today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Romans 16, uh, this is uh, God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Syncre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for, for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Trophena and Trophosa, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Pat Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julius, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create, obst create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been, been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
For your obedience is known to all so that that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Scott, you can put my notes up there. I don't know how much you think about your name. Uh, I don't know uh, what that means to you, but I do know that when somebody calls you by name, that's meaningful, right? Uh, When someone says your name, someone that you may not know that well remembers your name, that says something, doesn't it? And so it's interesting to us to note here that as Paul writes this letter, we might have the tendency to think that this letter was written first and foremost to us. It is written to us. But when Paul wrote, uh, actually dictated, as we'll see, this letter, he had these people in mind. Um, Names are important. In fact, uh, God knows your name. And in Christ, you will be known by the name that you have now, when uh, you uh, are in heaven. And it's a pretty uh, great thing uh, for us to think about. Uh, This week, uh, we had our first of a number of appointments with an orthopedic surgeon after Marty's fall, and uh, the doctor we went to see has the same name as one of my kids, and the same name as my middle name. Uh, It's a unique name, not one that's very common, and uh, Uh, He's from North Carolina, my family's from North Carolina, so I thought perhaps we're distantly related and we can get a discount. And so, uh, but fortunately, he was not that interested in talking to us about names. He was more interested in talking about Marty's two broken bones in her arm, and so, which I guess was a good thing. Um, but, uh, But the fact of the matter is, you know, our names matter to us, don't they? So you can imagine that when this letter was delivered to the saints at Rome, uh, how warm it was for them to hear their names uh, read out loud. Now, one of the things to note about this, too, is that Paul has these people in mind. He knows these people. And you may be thinking, well, how is it if Paul, as we'll see next week, has never been to Rome? How does he know all these people who are in the church at Rome? Well, one of the great things to see about the, the, the nature of the church in the first century is this. You know, Paul writes in Galatians that at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law at the right time. We kind of blow through that. You know what the right time was for Jesus to be born? There's one great thing about the Roman Empire. And it was this. They loved roads. They built a lot of roads. And they made sure that the sea lanes were safe. 
So international travel was uh, pretty widespread. People were able to move and to get from one place to another. And so uh, many of the people that he identifies as being in Rome, we read in other places in the New Testament, were other places as well. And so uh, unlike the way it is now with Southwest Airlines and other airlines like that, for us, travel was actually uh, something that was readily available for people. And these people were quite mobile. Jesus came at the time when the gospel up until that point in time in history would spread most quickly. Uh, that it would be a pan-national, uh, pan-ethnic, pan-racial, pan-social class movement that would spread from the tiny province of Palestine across the whole globe. And this letter, written some 30 years after, 30 to 40 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, is a demonstration to us that the gospel is actually moving out. Uh, this is the first Sunday after Epiphany, which celebrates Christ's mission. And what we see by the names here, that there are Greek names and Latin names, uh, people of Jewish origin, uh, people who are slaves, people who are city officials, people who are close to the household of Caesar, that the gospel is actually having its appeal across all kinds of folks. And so it's good for us to see and to understand that even in the first century, a church that had no political power, no real social status, simply the Holy Spirit empowered message of the gospel that Jesus was on mission and that he was winning men and women, boys and girls, from every language, tribe, nation, and class. We'll see it right here lived out in this one particular body that's there. So it's a great thing to see the mission of the church manifest in the actual church. And that's why Paul says here at the end, the prophetic writings have been, has been made known to all nations. And so it, it's important for us to see the, the, the fact that... Uh, that the mission of the church to win the world to Christ was actually being manifest in a particular local church. Uh, and within those, that, polit, uh, that uh, particular local church, there were all kinds of people. Now, one of the things to note about this is there wasn't just one group of Christians meeting in Rome. We, if you read the text carefully, you'll notice that there are at least six house churches that make up the church in Rome. So these churches would have been spread throughout the whole city uh, with all different kinds of people in them. All right, next slide. Uh, so I want to do something, a, a little note about some of the names. We're not going to call out everybody in here. There's more than 26 names. The pastor went way too long at the nine o'clock service. So we need to uh, hitch up our pants and get, get a little bit, uh, move this along a little bit. So the first person he mentions is Phoebe. Phoebe uh, uh, is the person that he sends, interestingly, right? Here he is. He sends a woman with the, uh, 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 across uh, the world to deliver this letter to Rome. And so and he sends with her probably a letter of introduction, and he commends her. He says, our sister, right? 
Um, and I think, I think that's an important thing for us to, to uh, kind of think about. We, we tend to not think of ourselves as first and foremost brothers and sisters with each other. But in Christ, you have a bond uh, to him and a bond to one another that transcends all others. You will be brothers and sisters eternally in Christ, right? And so Paul wants us to understand at the, at the very first that he says to the church in Rome, I'm sending our sister to you, your sister to you, even though you've never met her. And I want you to receive her and I want you to help her. Well, why would she need help? Well, she doesn't have MapQuest. She doesn't have uh, ways on her phone to be able to know her way around Rome. She's brand new. She's never been there before. And so she doesn't probably know that many people. But there are Christians there. And because there are Christians there, Paul dispatches her with the full confidence that these people who are strangers to her <coughs> will greet her, receive her, and, and help her out. Uh, that's, that's an important, that, that, that is so important for us uh, to see and, and to unpack a little bit because one of the things that we think and, about hospitality and greeting and receiving people is not the way the New Testament typically understands hospitality and receiving people. Typically, when you think about hospitality, the way you think about that is, Having friends over for dinner or drinks or <coughs> a cookout or just some sort of gathering, right? Um, I was thinking about it uh, like at, at the early service. Like I could say, you know, I'm going to invite the Farkases over. And I've known the Farkases 30 years. 30 years, right? That'd be very hospitable of us particularly because my wife has a broken wrist and a broken ankle, right? Wouldn't be very hospitable to Marty if I came home and said, hey, the Farkases are coming over for lunch. Get up, fix them a sandwich. So, um, but the fact is, uh, that's not what the New Testament views as hospitality. It's good. We should do it. The more we do it, the better. But even better yet is hospitality extended to strangers who your only connection to them is Jesus. Might be awkward. Oh, it will be awkward. <laughs> right? But there's something spiritually powerful in the welcome that we give to those who are strangers to us, yet brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul wants to see manifest in this church there in Rome the spiritual power of the gospel and the fact that people will greet and welcome and serve those who are strangers to them. We also note this about Phoebe. One of the things that Paul commends her about is, is that Phoebe, uh, he calls her a patron here. What that means is she was rich. She had means that she was a missionary supporter, that she had actually supported Paul and many others. And so uh, she is a, a woman of wealth. 
and, and, and what we will see about this is, is that this woman of wealth is going to be greeted by a church made up of high officials, workmen, and slaves. Right? So Paul is going to send uh, greetings to 26 individuals, and these names tell us something of the unity and the diversity of the church in Rome. Next slide. Um, this church, as we will see, has rich and poor, Gentile and Jewish people, men and women, boys and girls. Uh, they meet in, in homes. They are socially distinct. They are politically distinct. Uh, they are ethnically distinct. Uh, and there are probably any number of languages that are spoken in the church. Two people that, if you're familiar with the New Testament at all, that would be familiar to you are Aquila and Prisca. They were Jewish believers. Uh, they were great uh, missionaries. They were great disciplers. Uh, uh, they uh, discipled some of the greatest and best-known uh, 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 leaders uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the early church. We read this in these names, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Hermes, Philologus, Julia. These were common names of slaves. But what's even more subversive about this and what's even more crazy for us to read about this is, and this might have jumped out at you, at verse 22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now you might have thought, is that Paul's nickname, Tertius? No. The way we tend to think about Paul writing his letters is that he sat down with a pen and, and he wrote these letters. That's not the way he did this. In fact, most of his letters are dictated to someone else who writes down what he said. What a mind, first of all, that as we'll see as we dig into this, that he is just calling this stuff straight out of his mind and there's a guy sitting there with him writing down the things that he's saying. Amazing, amazing. But I want you to notice something about this man, Tertius. You know what Tertius means? It means third. Now we hear that and we think, well, that's a very humble name. You know, I guess it's more humble than first, <laughs> right? But there's something to learn about that. What is Tertius? Why, why in the world would anybody name their kid Tertius? Well, nobody names their kid Tertius. Owners name their slaves. Sometimes, well, they don't name them. They number them. You're third. And he'll say here later uh, in this verse, and our brother Quartus, <coughs> fourth, greets you. That's weird, isn't it? Should be weird. Should make you uncomfortable. You feel the beads of sweat growing out on your forehead? How does this work? How does this happen? How, how can this be? I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy because the fact of the matter is the church was such a subversive institution because in the church, you might have people who were slaves who were actually leaders and elders of their owners. Weird. Hard for us to get our brain around that, isn't it? Uh, and, but that's exactly the nature of the diversity that was there, that was present uh, in the early church. And there's something for us to, 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 to 
to learn about that and something about that to, to kind of unpack for us. I mean, the seeds of the destruction of slavery are right here. Because in Christ, how can you enslave someone who's your brother or your sister, right? How can you do that? Well, that's the thing that's going on here in this church is that the bond that these people have with one another in Christ transcends all of the things that we use to divide and to make distinction, right? I mean, think about the ways that you make distinction. Education, economic status, language, race, uh, social status, coolness or not coolness, what, whatever, whatever your, you know, what kind of shoes do you wear? I mean, I, I, I never thought about shoes until I got married. And, uh, you know, we would go home from church uh, when we were first married and Marty would, you know, I'm like, what'd you think about church today? I really like Jackie's shoes. And she was like, you know, but, you know, so-and-so over here, they don't wear very nice shoes. I mean, she studies people's shoes, their hands, and their teeth, right? And so, uh, which, is, which is kind of ironic, because she threw a bunch of my shoes out when we first got married. So, uh, but, the, but the fact of the matter is, the way we should think about this is, is that the church is such a different kind of organism, organization, and institution from any other. And so the subversive work of the gospel is that it makes brothers and sisters of greaters and lessers, whatever you might think the greater is and whatever you think the lesser is, right? Next slide. Uh, we read about this guy, Rufus, right? Uh, Rufus is a name that's fallen on uh, hard times. Haven't heard any babies around here uh, named Rufus in a while. That's too bad. Um, because we read about a Rufus uh, in the Gospel of Mark, who was the son of Simon uh, the Cyrene, who was actually the guy who helped Jesus carry the cross uh, to Calvary. We read about him in Mark 15, 21, because, and we think that Mark's Gospel was either written for people in Rome or maybe even from Rome itself. We read about this man, Aristobulus. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, and Narcissus was an influential freedman who had been a slave, who bought his, his uh, freedom, who exercised great influence over the emperor Claudius. Now, while these men themselves may not have been believers, what we read is, is there are people in their household who are, right? And so the gospel is having this effect where it is penetrating in every area of society. Next slide. Uh, we read about Andronicus and Junius. Junia. They are likely of Jewish uh, uh, or, or origin. They had at one time been imprisoned with Paul. They were converted before he was, and it says to us that they were apostles. Now, they were not apostles in the same way that James and Peter and John and Paul were, but they, were, they had an apostolic ministry. In other words, they had been identified by a local church somewhere, and they had the apostolic ministry of being sent out with the message of the gospel to plant churches in other places, right? So there are Jews, there are Gentiles in this church, uh, there are slave people, there are free people, 
people, there are rich people, there are poor people, there are all kinds of people in these churches. And they're all together worshiping Christ, and they will be the ones who will receive this great letter uh, uh, from Paul. Now, what can we take away from this? Well, a a couple of things. Uh, The first one is this, uh, is that heterogeneity, in other words, the opposite of homogenous. You know, homogenized milk, you know what that is? You know, that's that's so that you don't uh, have the cream rise to the top. Homogenized milk has been uh, made so that all the molecules mix together and they don't separate. That's not real milk, by the way. Homogenized milk is not real milk. It's homogenized. It's all, you know, so that there's no, no distinction in it. I want to tell you something, and I chose this word heterogeneity and homogeneity on purpose. When I was cutting my teeth as beginning to understand how to be a church planner, you know what the primary principle, sociological principle for planting churches was? It's called the homogeneous principle. You know what the homogeneous principle is? If you go to be a missionary, you go to plant a church somewhere, you only want to attract one kind of person because you know there's something about human beings. And you know what it is about human beings? Human beings only like to be around people like them. And so, one of the reasons why we, and and it was wildly successful, successful, in the sense that there are many large churches in America today that are largely, everybody's the same. They look the same, they talk the same, they're just the same, and they're comfortable. Now, what's funny to me about this is, is how in the world did we decide that our missiological strategy would be based upon something that's clearly not biblical? Well, I think we know. When, when what you worship is not Jesus Christ, the pan-national uh, uh, Lord of all. And what you tend to worship is success, numbers, reputation, those sorts of things. It's easy for us, to, and lack of awkwardness, it's easy for us to then put ourselves in a position where we think, ah, you know, God is blessing us because we're growing and we're all together, and we are all the same, and we're all agree in agreement. When what Jesus seems to want for the, well, he doesn't seem to want, what, what Jesus sees the church, he sees men and women, boys and girls, rich and poor, united in him, learning, figuring out, struggling how to be together. It's hard. It's so hard. 
don't think that this was an easy accomplishment for the church at Rome, because I think it is pretty powerful for us to read that as he is saying this and as he is laying this out for us, he says this, the God of peace, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Why would it be the God of peace would do this violence to Satan? Well, the, 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 there are a million reasons for that. Satan's what got us into the mess we're in in the first place. He, he is a tempter of the church. He is uh, a liar, a murderer, a thief, all of those things. But one of the ways that, uh, God, that Paul wants us to understand the nature of the church and the fruit of what he is teaching to the church at Rome is this, is that it is a device of our enemy um, that he stands against the God of peace. By his cross, Jesus made peace between us and God. And as Paul says in Ephesians, every dividing wall has been broken down. Now, let me just say, I know that it is very popular right now to say we don't have any dividing walls. And that's good. Dividing walls are bad because Jesus demolishes them. He kicks them over. He undoes them. Perhaps, though, one of the dividing walls that we have missed and one that is a little closer to home than the one that we are so quick to identify others in others is the dividing wall of preference. I might prefer someone like me who doesn't make me uncomfortable. And so it's a very small jump for me taking my preference to believe that what we have in common is uh, you like the same things I do, I like the same things you do, I like the same politicians, you like the same politicians, you, you have about the same socioeconomic standing that I do, we, we both have the same educational uh, standing, all of those sorts of things that we subtly create a dividing wall simply by what's comfortable for us. And by our preference, without being snooty about it, really, or, or super prideful about it, looking down our nose at others, we simply make choices of who we will fellowship with simply because it's easier to be in fellowship with someone who always agrees with us. Isn't it? Right? So, so what's so profound to me about this is we have this church with free people, slaves. We have this church with rich people, poor people. We have this church with people who are of Jewish origin and people who are Gentile origin. We have people who've been a Christian a long time. We have people who have not been Christians very long at all. We have people who are at the very close to the very seat of political power and people who have no power at all. And they're one church. One church. Man, that was hard. Do you think everybody in the Roman church agreed 
with everybody else about Roman foreign policy or about uh, the Roman uh, imperial budget or uh, the Roman policy about anything. Do you think people agreed with one another about those sorts of things? Do you think it was a raucous, challenging place to be? I think so. I think so. I know people. I'm a big believer in raucous, riotous, headstrong, opinionated people who seek other headstrong, opinionated people who agree with them, right? So heterogeneity is of the essence of the church. In fact, Jesus' vision of the church at the end of time is men and women, boys and girls from every language, tribe, nation. Yeah. But here's the thing that's even crazier about it. And if you got a beef with this, you should really have a beef with this, what I'm about to tell you. That being made awkward by people, brothers and sisters, who are different from you, is good for you. There, take your medicine, right? So, so the, because this is the way it works, right? Next slide. Uh, it helps us not be so self-focused and self-indulgent if we actually have in proximity to us people who are uh, uh, needier, people who are just as needy uh, as we are, right? It humbles us. Uh, because th the fact of the matter is, this person who is so different from you or from me, who is so wrong-headed about their politics, is actually your brother or sister. On Tuesday night, as we gathered to receive friends here for Michael's, uh, uh, before his um, memorial service, one of the guys in my Friday morning group came up to me and put his hand on my back and just said, I love you, brother. Now, we kind of tend to think sometimes that calling one another brothers and sisters is this kind of quaint thing, and it's a theological fiction. But it is deadly serious business that Jesus Christ died to make you a brother and a sister to one another. It teaches us compassion because it expands our vision for the nature of the kind of people that Jesus loves. And better yet, it teaches us long-suffering. Uh, because what it does for us is it puts us in a situation, I have to think you are my brother, you are my sister. We are bonded eternally in the strong bonds of Jesus Christ. And so my call is to love you even when I think you're wrong. Even when I think, oh, I don't think, I know you're so irritating. Always so irritating, right? But we won't learn long-suffering and we won't learn what it means to be a body until we learn to love the person that irritates us the most. Now, one of the things that's popular in our culture right now is get rid of the irritating people in your life. <laughs> you know, the, the fact is 
Do you think these people irritated one another? Of course they did. But because they were united together in Christ, they, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had to take the grace of the gospel, the, the, the crucified Christ, and apply that to the way in which they lived in community with one another. And finally, it teaches us patience. You know, patience is the, is the fruit of the Spirit that we least like. You can't fake patience. Uh, and patience is a, a marathon. It's a long-haul virtue that God works in us in that we bear with one another, we love one another, we continue with one another, even as my mom used to say, you've twanged my last nerve. Right? That doesn't mean we don't call each other out on our sin. It doesn't mean that we don't rebuke one another when that's called for. But I can never cancel you out of my life. As long as you are maintaining a profession of faith in Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister, and we're bound together. We belong to one another. Even if it's awkward, even if it's hard to understand you, even if it's hard for you to understand me, what Jesus has done is something uh, more um, profound than we know. One of the reasons why you lack power in your spiritual life is this, you do not put yourself in proximity to those who differ from you. We tend to live in echo chambers, don't we? So that we hear and are made comfortable by the same things that we already know and that we already agree about. Growth comes from being made uncomfortable. You get stronger by breaking down your muscles, right? That's, that's what exercise does. We grow more like Christ when we put ourselves in positions where we need him to help us do the work of what it means to live together as his people, to live together as brothers and sisters. It would be easier to write people off. Thanks be to God, Jesus hasn't written you off or me off. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's confess our sins together. Almighty God, your grace removes our burdens and heaps them on your Son, made a transgressor, a curse, and sin for us. Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy, cast off that we might be brought in, 
trodden down as an enemy that we might be welcomed as friends and surrendered to hell's worst that we might receive heaven's best. Stripped that we might be clothed, wounded that we might be healed, thirsty that we might drink, tormented that we might be comforted, made ashamed that we might inherit glory, experienced reproach that we might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that we might forever live. O Father, who did not spare your only Son, that you might spare us, all this your love designed and accomplished. Help us to adore you as we see Satan crushed, defeated, destroyed, sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's door closed, heaven's gate open. Go forth, O conquering God, and show us the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. You were once separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 